Morning, church. Listen, uh, before we get into the text, I wanna tell you a couple things. Number one, if you haven't been with us on a worship night, I strongly encourage you to be there uh, this Wednesday. The, the, the reality is, you know, you can go online and you can listen to some of the most gifted, some of the finest preachers in the world, but what you can't do is you can't stand shoulder to shoulder with God's people, your brothers and sisters in Christ, lifting up the name of Jesus. That just can't be replicated in any other way apart from just community, being together. And so uh, we've only been doing these for a couple of years, but I'll tell you, each time it grows and grows. And so uh, this year, or this Wednesday, I think this place is gonna be filled and it's gonna be really something special. So I wanna encourage you to be there for that. And secondly, I wanna say a word about the father-daughter dance. I wanna set it up by saying this. When my daughter was born, I bought her a little keepsake memory box. You know what I'm talking about? It's a little wooden box, had her name inscribed on it. Her name is Faith, of course, she's a pastor's daughter. <laughs> and every year on her birthday, uh, I write her a letter. And she just turned 19 last month. And she keeps those letters in that box. And every year as I write to her, I reflect upon the things that we've done together over the last year and my hopes for her, my dreams for her, my prayers for her as well, they're all contained in these letters. But as I reflect upon what, uh, what I write, it occurred to me so much of what is written has to do with our shared experiences together in church, right? And I want her to know from the time that she's born how important church is in our lives together. So this is just another opportunity, dads, you know what I'm saying, for you to enter into that space. That's one of the reasons why, why we provide it. So if you have a daughter, you can go in the lobby and uh, get more information on that. I think we have close to 200 people signed up already. Um, or you can, uh, you can check it out, more information online as well. Cool? All right, so we're jumping right back into it, everybody. Uh, buckle up. We're in Romans chapter 10 after being out for a couple of weeks. And if you remember... Paul has been addressing a recurring argument in this section of Romans. And essentially the argument goes like this. If the nation of Israel has received all of these amazing blessings from God, I mean, them alone, them alone, they have been a very privileged people in that of all people groups, God selected them to be his chosen people. To them, he made the promises in the covenants, and to them alone, to them he gave the great patriarchs of the faith, to them he entrusted his sacred text. Through them would come ultimately God's plan to redeem mankind, the Messiah, be Jewish. If God has given them all of these amazing privileges, and yet they have rejected them, they are still pursuing a form of righteousness that is based on the law apart from what Jesus came to save them from. That is a righteousness that is found in Christ apart from works. If the nation has rejected God's plan, then doesn't that mean God is a failure? Doesn't that mean God has failed? Like he couldn't pull it off. Well, Paul responds with a resounding no. Here's what you don't understand, God in his providence or sovereignty has arranged things within the nation of Israel throughout their history, doing things that nobody ever expected to happen because purely as a result of God's divine decree. 
Then he gives some examples. Traditionally speaking, it was always believed that the firstborn would have the rights and privileges. But God, in his sovereignty, upends that, not once, but twice. Paul uses these examples. You all expect God to work a certain way. Don't put God in a box. He's got bigger plans than what you think. Abraham, the great patriarch, was told that God is gonna have a special relationship with you. He's gonna bless you. He's gonna give you many descendants. And at that time, Abraham had none. Even though you and Sarah are way beyond childbearing age, I'm gonna perform a miracle. I'm gonna bless you. Ishmael is born. Everybody would expect, oh, Ishmael is gonna be the promised one through which God would deliver his future promises. And God says, no, it's not gonna be Ishmael. Even though he's the firstborn, it's gonna be Isaac, the secondborn. Later, two twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is born first. Everybody thinks clearly that's where the blessings are gonna be, right? Firstborn. God says, no, I'm about to do it again. It's not gonna be through Esau, but in my divine choosing, it's going to be Jacob. He'll be the recipients of the blessing. And then Paul says, I'll take it a step further. Pharaoh, one of, if not the most powerful man in the world at that time, God says, I raised him up. In, in essence, God says, he was my puppet to show the world my power. God is sovereign. That's Romans chapter nine. God has not failed. God will do whatever he sets out to do, not in the way you expect him to. And then suddenly, at the end of chapter nine, Paul flips the coin, and he shows you the other side. The other side of God's sovereignty is human responsibility. This is how he ends the chapter. Because they, that is the nation of Israel, did not pursue it, a righteousness by faith, but as if righteousness were based on works rather than faith in Christ. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, which is a reference to Jesus. As it is written, now he's gonna quote Isaiah, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. Because this was written, prophesied 700 years before the time of Jesus, it's as if he says, even in this God knew what was gonna happen. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and then he adds this, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice carefully. He says they did not respond in faith. Previously, he's talked all about the sovereignty of God, his divine decree. Nothing will stop it. And then at the end, he says, now, lest you think it's all God's sovereignty, let me throw this in. There's also human responsibility. Yeah. You will be responsible for your response to how God has sovereignly arranged salvation through Jesus. Uh, there's a paradox here, isn't there? The question is, how does God's sovereignty and man's free will, how do those two things intersect? That's a paradox that the Bible doesn't completely resolve. And I'll tell you, for a long time with my tiny little analytical mind, I struggled with this until I realized that if I understood everything about God, including the details of how he works, then that would make me what? That would make me God-like. 
And then I realized that none of this contradicts human reason, but it certainly transcends it. And I actually take great comfort in that now because leave it to a supernatural supreme being to come up with something like this that our finite minds cannot understand. You should take comfort in that. You don't wanna worship a God whom you can completely figure out because then he's no longer transcendent. An illustration might be helpful here. And I, and I understand, you know, as I, before I show this, let me make it clear, all illustrations break down somewhere. But let's try. Imagine you're at the bottom of a pit and you have no way of getting out. And then suddenly there appear two ropes, one on either side of you. One rope is labeled free will. The other rope is labeled God's sovereignty. So you turn to the free will rope and you're pulling and pulling and pulling, but there's nothing but slack, there's no tension. So you give up and you turn to the rope that's labeled God's sovereignty and you pull and you pull and you pull. Same thing, all slack, no tension. It isn't until you grab onto both that you can pull yourself out. Within the framework of how God operates, he uses both his sovereignty and human responsibility to accomplish his good purposes. And I think this balance is healthy for a number of reasons. Because you see, you could finish reading chapter nine and you could think to yourself, well, uh, if God has decreed everything, then no one can hold me accountable. It's all on God and not on me. Then all of a sudden, you read that last sentence in chapter nine and it's actually set up to everything that comes in chapter 10. Because what God does is he puts the responsibility for Israel's lostness completely and totally on them and their rejection of the Messiah. Now you might say, well now who would actually think that way? Who would think that God wouldn't hold them accountable? Well, I'll give you a real world illustration. I have a friend who was part of a church a number of years ago and that church actually split over a discussion of whether or not evangelism training should be included in their children's curriculum. Some said, yes, we should include it. Others said, no. No, you don't need to include evangelism training because if God decrees it, it's going to happen. So they read chapter nine, Romans chapter nine, but, but they, they stopped. They didn't read what Paul writes in the middle of chapter 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So at Illuminate, we teach the full counsel of God. And I told you, this is where if you wanna dig into any particular commentary about Romans that's meant to highlight certain things out of the text, go straight to what they have to say about Romans chapter nine and 10. This is the meat of the section. We, we teach the entire count, the full orbed teaching of the scripture, Romans chapter nine and 10, wherein we agree with God's sovereignty, but we also understand that we are responsible. Chapter 10, verse one, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. 
for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's misplaced. Not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. God's righteousness, that would be through Jesus, apart from works of the law. For Christ puts an end, he is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's quite beautiful. Paul once again shares his heart for his brothers and sisters. Previously, he said, if I could give up my seat on the bus for them, I would. Here, he actually compliments them. He says, they're zealous. They're zealous in their faith, which, which is quite remarkable because m- many of the ones who are most zealous are also the ones that want to kill Paul. But he compliments them. But he's quick to say their zeal is misguided. It's misplaced. Now, Let's talk about Jewish zeal. Even to this day, you see the passion Israel has to uphold or defend her way of life, her beliefs. You see it to this day. I mean, like right now. Consider this too. In the history of the world, when you think all of the, about all the different people groups that have come and gone, the Israeli state is one of, if not the longest running, continuous in all of human history. Now you think about it. I've jokingly said it to you like this before. When's the last time you had lunch with a Hittite or a Malachite or a Jebusite or a Canaanite? The Israelites are still here. You ever wonder why that is? I mean, countless people groups have come and gone. Why are they still around? Well, number one, God said they would be, but number two, they are fiercely zealous. Paul writes and says, you should thank the Israelite because you have their sacred text in your hands and they have been fierce in protecting it and keeping it alive. And yet Paul says, as zealous as they are, there's something they missed. They're still pursuing a righteousness that is apart from Jesus. Their righteousness is still attached to works of the law. Christian, what are you zealous for? Replace the word zealous with passionate. What are you passionate about? You can be passionate about a lot of things, but be careful that your passion doesn't mislead you. See, that's what that's what Paul is saying here. Very passionate, and but by the way, very sincere. But you can be sincere and wrong. You can be passionate, but in the wrong direction. 
Paul says, that's their lot, Christian. What are you passionate about? What do you care intensely about? To further illustrate this point, Paul speaks about Moses, one of the great patriarchs. Verse five, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. I mean, he was the one who received the law from God. And he says that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. What's he saying? Well, if you think you can earn your way to God by keeping works of the law, by doing all the do's and refraining from all the don'ts, you've got a big problem because you're gonna have to keep every single one of those perfectly, perfectly. If you think you can earn your way to God, what's the standard? It's not that your good is gonna outweigh your bad. That's not what it's talking about. You're gonna have to be perfect. You have to be perfect in everything, all the time. You can't do that. That's why the scriptures say that the law was never meant to save us. It was a guide to show us we were sinners until Christ came. It shows you that you're in need of a savior, that you can't save yourself. But the righteousness based on faith, apart from works, says this. Do not say in your heart, well, who will ascend to heaven? That is, if you're, going to, if you're attempting to like bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss? Or another word for abyss is death to the grave. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. I'll explain this in a moment. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. This is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, kurios, which means master, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That part raised from the dead is pretty important because if you don't believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, then what power, what life over death power are you hoping you can get from Jesus if you don't believe he was raised from the dead? For with the heart one believes, and the heart in the Jewish mind was, was the seat of intellect, emotion, and will. For with the heart one believes and is justified, declared righteous by God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So here's what Paul does. He loosely quotes Moses to, in effect, say this. Who will ascend to heaven as if that's where you have to go to meet Jesus? Who will descend to the abyss, to the grave, to death, as if Jesus is there? He says, no. Jesus is way more accessible than that. He's closer than you know. In fact, he's so close, all you have to do is speak it. It's not like you have to travel someplace to try to, hey, is Jesus up there in heaven? Hey, can you hear me? Will you save me? Is Jesus still in the grave? Will you hear me? No, no, he says, no, that's all right. He's closer, that's what the text says. He says he's closer than you know. All you have to do is call on him and you will be saved. It's not that complicated. It's not mystical. It's not abstract or hidden. It's available and simple. And by the way, it's for everybody. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. I explained this a few weeks ago. This is a bomb drop because the world was fiercely divided back in the day. I mean, you think the world is prejudiced now? You have no clue. Step back in time 2,000 years. You travel too far outside your native land, it'd be very bad for you as a foreigner. The Jews divided the world into two groups, Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles. So God's chosen people and everybody else. The Greeks did the same thing. 
It was the sophisticated Greek or the unsophisticated barbarian. Only two categories in this world. And Paul says, hey, the message of Jesus just levels everybody's prejudice. And that Christianity is the great unifier because essentially what he's saying is at the foot of the cross, every human is there. Every human is there, exposed as a sinner in need of a savior. That's the humbling power of the gospel. When you start to think too highly of yourself, the gospel comes into your life and says, no, 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 no. You're a sinner separated from God, just like everybody else. And then when you start to think you're, you're too low, like, oh, I'm just pawn scum, I'm worthless, I'm nobody. The gospel says, no, 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 Jesus died for you. You're more valuable than you know. You're more loved than you know. It's for everybody. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Quote from the prophet Joel. Because he quotes from the prophet Joel, essentially what he's saying is, it's always been this way. It's always been this way. God has never shown partiality. God is the one who provides salvation, but you must call on it. That's quite good. God's sovereignty in providing the means of salvation and your responsibility for responding. Speaking of human responsibility, consider this, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Very simple, progressive logic. You cannot call on Jesus if you've never heard of him. So, God sends preachers, like me. <laughs> and you. I'll make this very clear. I have no higher calling to preach the gospel than you. And if you believe that, read Hebrews, because the author of Hebrews says, you know what this is collectively in this room, brothers and sisters? You're all priests. It's the priesthood of believers. You're all ministers of the gospel, not just me. People will say, hey, Jason, I have this friend, you know, I wanna bring him to church. Will you preach the gospel? I'm like, I'm not your hired gun. <laughs> not your hired gun. Scriptures say, be diligent, present yourself approved unto God as a workman. Why? Because you can handle accurately the word of God and you won't be ashamed. That's your calling. Oh, and by the way, if you don't like the word preach, can I just tell you, you're constantly being preached at. What does it mean to preach, to proclaim? You don't think culture's preaching at you? Well, there's a sermon, there's a sermon, there's a sermon, you understand what I'm saying? You're constantly being preached at. They have an ulterior motive in mind. Ultimately, they wanna reach their hand into your money. And in some way, they, they, they have some narrative that they want you to buy into for their benefit. Might not be in your best interest. You're constantly being preached at. Time for you to start preaching. It's time for you to start preaching. Preach. Well, as the preaching goes forth, not everybody will respond. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. And by the way, this too was predicted long ago. He's gonna quote from Isaiah. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed 
what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? He's about to say, yes, they have heard in more ways than they know. And he's gonna reach back and quote the psalmist in Psalm 19, but he's also gonna connect something that he has said in Romans chapter one, the way he began the text. He says this, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. What's he talking about? Well, in Romans one, Paul says that all people are without excuse because through nature, that is to say creation points to a creator. We see incredible design in this world. Unbelievable order, complexity. The more complex the design, the more intelligent the creator. I heard it said recently that the longest word in English is what? Anybody know? A DNA strand. It's exactly right. You wanna talk about complexity? Order? Intelligence? The fingerprints of God are everywhere. You all have no excuse. Paul's very insightful. Then why do people reject God? He tells you why. Because you don't want there to be a God. Because if there is a God, it stands to reason. He probably has something to say about how you're living your life. Well, who wants that? I don't. In America, we love our autonomy. We love freedom. We don't want anybody telling us how to live our lives. Well, that's a problem for you. (laughs) You're a lousy God. You aren't the author, creator, and sustainer of all life. You don't even know how life should be best lived. In fact, you have this inward desire that when pursued will destroy you. Okay, that's how it works. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous to the nation of Israel. So there's gonna come a day when you all, you're gonna be jealous. How? Well, you'll be jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry, God says to them. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands. You know, this is an expression of peacemaking to a disobedient and contrary people. God says, I'm gonna make you jealous, Israel. How so? Well, because those who didn't seek me, I'm revealing myself to. So here's what's happening. Salvation is for everybody. Jew and Greek. And so when salvation comes to those who are not a part of the nation of Israel, that is outside of what everybody thought were God's chosen people, all of a sudden, the people look and say, no, 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 wait a minute. What is God doing with these people over here? And then when those people receive the righteousness that is not from the law, but from Christ, they experience the blessings of God upon them. Now all of a sudden the people are like, wait a minute. I don't know if I like the fact that they're being blessed because you see in the Jewish mindset, any good that happens to you happens as a direct result of God's favor coming upon you. So they look at the favor that has come upon the Gentile, the non-Jew, and they're like, I don't know if we like this. And what does the scripture say? 
I'm a little bit jealous about this. And God's like, exactly, exactly. Do you see how it works, everybody? My way is right and true. Pursue the righteousness by faith and you will be blessed. See the blessing that they have? Look and learn. Look and learn. Allow your jealousy to fuel you in such a way that your knee is bent. All day long, God says, I've stretched out my hands. So many times I've heard it said, you know, if God would just do a little bit more, if he would just do a little bit more, you know, he hasn't done enough. If he, could just do, if he could just do what I want him to do to persuade me, then we might have a deal. I want to speak to this by reading you something that will put this in perspective. Suppose God determined to redeem mankind and freely gave special gifts to one nation of people in order that through them, the whole world would be blessed. Suppose God did that. Suppose God delivered this people from poverty and enslavement to a ruthless Egyptian pharaoh. Suppose this privileged nation, as soon as it was liberated by God, rose up in further rebellion against their God and their liberator. Suppose they took his law and violated it consistently after he rescued them. Suppose that God, still intent upon redemption, sent special messengers or prophets to plead with his people, turn back to me, turn back to me. Suppose the people killed those divine messengers and mocked their message. Suppose the people then began to worship idols of stone and things fashioned by their own hands. Suppose these people invented religions that were contrary to the truth of the real God and worshiped creatures rather than the creator. Suppose in an ultimate act of redemption, God himself became incarnate in the person of his son. Suppose the son came into the world, not to condemn the world, but to redeem the world. But suppose the son of God was rejected, slandered, mocked, tortured, and murdered by the very people he was sent to redeem. Yet suppose that God accepted the murder of his son as punishment for the sins of the very persons who murdered him. Suppose this God offered to his son's murderers total amnesty, complete forgiveness, transcendent peace that comes with the cleansing of all guilt, victory over death, and an eternal life of complete happiness. Suppose God gave these people as a free gift the promises of a future life that would be without pain, without sickness, without death, and without tears. Suppose that God said to these people, there is only one thing that I demand, just one thing, that you give honor to my only begotten son and that you worship and serve him alone. Suppose God did all of that. Would you be willing to say to him, God, that's not fair. You haven't done enough. If man has in fact committed cosmic treason against God, what reason could we possibly have that God should provide any way of redemption? In light of the universal rebellion against God, the issue is not why is there only one way, but why is there any way at all? Now, if you pay attention in class, you know that this isn't so hypothetical, is it? This is the story of God and the relationship he's had with mankind. The problem is not with God. The problem is with the heart of man. Here's the good news. Salvation is way closer than you think. Way closer. Call in the name of Jesus. Believe that God raised him from the dead so that you could have eternal life. Let me add this too. 
Very important for you to understand what it is you've been saved from because you can't understand your salvation fully unless you understand what it is Jesus saves you from. Interesting. There's a growing movement, people trying to erase hell. It doesn't make any sense to me because what is Jesus saving you from? You know, it's like, why did he go through, why did he endure crucifixion? Why did he go through all that? If the person just like, you know, ceases to exist upon death. To erase hell is to cheapen your salvation. You can't fully understand it. You can't fully appreciate your salvation until you understand what it is you've been saved from. That's what makes the words of Paul so beautiful. Salvation is closer than you know. Have you made that call? You say, yeah, I've made it. If not, how do you do it? It's as simple as that. You make that confession. You believe. Your eternal destiny is secure. It is that simple. God is just that good. It's apart from works, which is good, because that's a mind mess. You never know if you've been good enough. Jesus was good on your behalf. What are you passionate about, Christian? What are you passionate about, preacher? You are preaching. You are proclaiming something about your life. St. Francis of Assisi was famous for saying, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, what? Use words. I don't like that. (laughs) I understand what he's saying. Let me just tell you, words are necessary. (laughs) Words are necessary. How are they gonna hear unless you speak the name? Preach, preach. You never know what God is doing behind the scene in someone's life. That's his work, preach. Mel Gibson, his most famous movie, what's the name of it? Great title, The Passion of the Christ. You know what Christ was passionate about? You. How good is that? Oh, that's good. What's he passionate? He's passionate about you. So that you could be passionate about him. I'm gonna have you bow your heads and close your eyes. We're gonna enter into a time of communion. No, no better way to reflect upon where the seat of your emotion and zeal lies. I'll give you a few minutes to let the Spirit of God speak to you. There'll be some verses on the screen. When the time is right, I'll come back up and I'll lead us. Father, in this moment, we do ask that your spirit would speak. Lord, for those that are in the room that have yet to call on your name to believe, Jesus, that you were raised from the dead, I pray that in this moment, your spirit would quicken that human spirit And that in the human response to your sovereign will, person is saved, delivered literally from death to life. Father, may we all contemplate what we're truly passionate about 
in our part, God, that you would give us the honor and dignity to communicate this message and to share it with others. That is a privilege, Lord. May we step into it for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. During the Passover meal, Jesus takes the bread, he breaks it. He says, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat, do so and remember me. And he takes the cup and he refers to the cup as being a new covenant. Essentially what he's saying is there's a new righteousness that's coming. It's a righteousness apart from the law. It's a righteousness now that's found in me. I will be righteous on your behalf. But it's going to require the shed blood of Jesus. The Bible says the life of a creature is in his blood. That's why Jesus had to die, to shed his blood for your wrongs. The wages of sin is death. Jesus dies, takes upon himself your wage. Righteousness through faith apart from works. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord now will be saved. New covenant in my blood for you as often as you drink the cup, do so and remember me. God, you are good. And just with our hearts bowed before you, 
Will you embolden us to take the message of Jesus and preach so that our feet can be described as a blessing, something beautiful to others because they bring the gospel. We're grateful for it now. But the fullness, the fullness of our experience is yet to come when we see you face to face. Until then, we want to be found faithful, good servants. All for your glory we pray. In the name of the one who gave his life for us. His name is Jesus Christ, and God's people said, Amen. Amen.